Um, I have been on an adventurous journey in my own study of what transpired into what turned into the Sermon on the Mount series on our Tuesdays. We did weeks and weeks and weeks of Jesus teaching the crowds in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That was birthed out of um, a need to look at the Jesus that walked the earth and listened to him because I preached the crucified, resurrected, ascended Jesus. I don't want to ignore the voice of Jesus on the earth. So the Sermon on the Mount sort of came out of that. And that has me digging in the parables, the stories Jesus told, these stories of grace, stories of the kingdom, and stories of judgment, because that's what the parables deal with, largely. Over the course of the last, I would say, three or four months, I've probably preached more on the parables than I have maybe in my entire ministry put together. Um, I've tried to re-examine them, spend time with them, wrestle them over. I'm not trying to come up with clever ideas. I'm just trying to land somewhere. Let me say this. I don't think there's one place to land. I've preached the prodigal son probably 10 different ways. I'd say seven or eight of them are pretty valid. I've probably, I'm going to give myself the benefit of the doubt that at some point I got it right. But I'm also smart enough to know that there was probably two or three of those in there that were trash. Um, so I've done a lot of them. I would say most of them probably hit something. My point there is I don't think there's just one way. You can preach the prodigal son. You can turn around and preach it the next week, take a different angle. You can preach it the next week, different angle. Not, they're not wrong. You can, what would be wrong is to say, I'm going to tell you the prodigal son today, and we're going to get to the bottom of this. Well, that's probably not going to happen. Um, I'm learning that with all the parables. And so what's been fun for me is to dig back in and say, okay, Lord, I think I know this story. I'm, I just try to be honest with the Lord when I read them. I think I know this story. Here's what I think it means. And then enlighten this moment. Tell me about this. I've never really thought about this verse. Why is this here? And when we start to do that, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll find that we're not as smart as we thought we were. We'll also find that this has shifted over time. That what that story meant to you when you were 18 doesn't mean at 30 what it'll mean at 45. And I've, I'm not past 45, but I got a feeling that as you go, you'll have other moments where you say, it's shifted because I've got new people in my life. I got a new season in my life. Story means something else. So you have your own context is my point. You have your own context for the scripture, how it relates to you. That's not the final context. Context is also what they had, their time, their place, their setting. We, we run the risk of missing the scripture if we ignore their context. We run the risk of missing the scripture if we only pay attention to their context. Because if we only pay attention to their context, then we're assuming that the Holy Spirit wasn't speaking past them to us ever about anything. All he was doing was talking to people in that time, in that place only, and that you're just reading it like an old book. If you get something out of it, great. If you don't get anything out of it, great. He didn't write it to you anyway. If, frankly, if that's how you're going to read the Bible, then why bother? You know, it's not that much better than other novels in just stories. So I do think context matters. Some of this is eschatological. Some of this is framed around Israel. Some of this is very first century AD. Some of this deals with the Roman Empire. Some of this deals with temple worship. 
But if I stop there, what good's that do you? You get done hearing the parable of Jesus and go, boy, them people had, they needed to do this and that and the other, but it doesn't mean anything to me. So part of my adventure is to be, has been, don't just find their context, find Paul White's context, find your context. Don't ignore theirs, but let theirs inform you. Let's let the parables do that. To do that today, I wanna, uh, I'm gonna give you a title called Hidden in a Handkerchief that's out of the gate. You've got no concept probably what hidden in a handkerchief possibly means, but I have a feeling the reason we don't really know what this means is because I wanna present to you today what I consider one of the most under-preached and maybe under-read parables of Jesus. In fact, there's a good chance that you don't even know this parable exists. And here's why. Not because you haven't read your Bible, not because you're not smart, but because we conflate it with another parable that's a lot like it, but is more popular. And what happens when those kind of things happen in the Gospels is we take the most popular version and we use the other versions as filler. We just sort of grab them out of the other Gospels and we let them inform it, but we call it these other things. Okay, before I even tell you the parable or where it is, the reason you don't know it is because you know the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents, see, heads are nodding. You know the parable of the talents. What's the parable of the talents? Guy gives five talents, two talents, and one talent to three different servants, and he goes off to a far country, and then he comes back, and he comes to the first guy, and he goes, what'd you do with my five? What'd you do with my two? What'd you do with my one? And because it's called a talent, we took it into the English and used that to mean talents, like singing and preaching and dancing and public speaking and running a business and playing baseball and whatever talent God gave you, use it for God. That's where we take the parable of the talents. That's shoddy context, but hey, it's our context, right? If you're going to be shoddy, at least own it. And so take your talent, use it for God, which leads you to sermons like, if you don't use your talent for God and you bury it, He'll take it away from you. And so that leads you to a lot of guilt. I was raised in churches where we peddled guilt based on a misreading of the parable of the talents because we'd go, hey, Lauren's got a song tonight. And Lauren would go, I don't have a song tonight. We'd go, Lauren, God gave you a talent to sing. And you go, yeah, but I don't want to sing. You better use it or you'll lose it. And then you get convicted. You know, now you're guilty. Uh-oh, got a talent. If I don't use it, you bury it in the sand, God will come along and just take it from you. One day you'll try to sing, you won't be able to sing. And you know what the Lord's telling you then? Ah, ha, ha, ha. See what happens? You bury the stuff I give you, I'll take it away from you. Now, I know that's kind of humorous, but I, everything I just told you, that is straight up how that parable was taught to me for decades. Don't bury the gifts God gave you, anointings, talents, abilities, or he'll take them away from you. That's primary interpretation of the parable of the talents. Secondary interpretation was used in the business realm. God gives you money, invest it in him and his ways, God will return it to you. Don't invest in him and his ways, you'll lose it anyway. This is a financial text. And we would use the parable of the talents to teach giving. So you'd take the parable of talents and combine it with some other scriptures about sowing and reaping, seed time and harvest, and tithing and giving, and grace giving, and you'd throw the parable of talents in there and suddenly you got yourself a ready-made Jesus story for a business seminar on how to increase profits in your business. And it's called, be responsible over the things that God gave you so that you can multiply them. And whether we realize it or not, that's not a grace message, that's a works message. 
I don't have much room for works messages when it comes to Jesus. I'm okay with works messages when it comes to brushing your teeth, tying your shoes, losing 10 pounds. Get on the works, man. But when it comes to righteousness and anointing and favor, I don't have any patience for works. I can't work my way to being righteous or being in favor or being justified or being sanctified. So I don't have time for just, I don't have time for Jesus stories that are convoluted into performance stories so that I can sell a book about giving. And I don't think you have time for it either. So that's all I'm going to tell you about that. We're done with that. All right. Parable of talents is not about you not singing in church. Parable of talents is not about you investing money and God will show you how to get a return. You want to do all that stuff? Fine. Don't throw Jesus into that foolishness. But I'm not even going to teach the parable of talents. I'm going to teach the less popular one, the one that we probably should pay attention to, but it doesn't have as cool of a word, talent. It has the less cool word, minna. The parable of the minna from the book of Luke, which most people don't even know exists because it got swept up in this financial singing parable of Jesus' Matthew 25, which is nestled perfectly into an eschatological section of the book of Matthew, Matthew 25. So I want to leave it all there in eschatology. I want to leave it all there in the parable of the talents. And I want to take you to the parable of the minna. And I'm running a risk here. And the risk is this, that you've never heard it. Or if you have, you thought it was the parable of the talents. And if you want to explain why it looks one way in Luke and one way in Matthew, I've got a really simple explanation for you. When people tell stories, they tell them different to different crowds. You tell it around the crowd. So if I'm going to give you an illustration, and I know that it's a room full of men, the illustration is going to be different than if I were going to give one in a room full of women. That doesn't make one true and one false. It makes one relevant to the group of men and one relevant to the group of women. If I'm going to tell a story in the first century primarily to Jewish people, about an end of the age, then I'm probably going to frame it around a different way of saying it than if I'm going to tell it to a people around my death, burial, and resurrection, which, hint, hint, the parable of menace is all about. So to do that, let's read it. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And here's what we're going to do. I'm only going to stop one time on my way through. Promise. All right? I know you don't believe that, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to stop one time on my way through that doesn't mean we won't come back to all these verses. We're going to stop once after the first verse. I want to set it up with verse 11. As they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. The reason I stop is because this sets the whole story up. As they heard these things means you need to know what happened in the first 10 verses. Well, we don't have that kind of time, so I'm going to tell you what happened. Zacchaeus. You know that story? Short little guy, couldn't find Jesus, climbed a sycamore tree. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. We're going to your house today. He goes to his house. He transforms his life. Zacchaeus decides he's going to give everybody the money back that he stole from him. Jesus goes, salvation comes to this house today. This son of Abraham has been set free by the son of man. The son of man, here's the verse right in front of this. The son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus drops son of man on them. Son of man to a Jew takes you to Daniel. Daniel's where you get the phrase son of man. Son of man's an eschatological phrase. Son of man's a pre-kingdom phrase. The son of man stands in front of the ancient of days and receives a kingdom that has no end, book of Daniel. So when Jesus drops son of man on them, they're all thinking kingdom's coming. Now, 
they think kingdom in the natural, swords and winners and beating up Caesar. And Jesus one puts brakes onto that party and shift gears because the kingdom has less to do with slitting throats and more to do with dying on crosses. It has less to do with you recreating empire and more to do with God recreating you. And so Jesus wants to slam the brakes on and shift gears. So has they heard these things, he tells another story. Because we're not going to go down your little road of the kingdom coming right now. Instead, I'm going to show you what the kingdom looks like because he's going to Jerusalem. And why is he going to Jerusalem? To die. And since he's going to Jerusalem to die and they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately, he wants to slam the brakes on their appearance question and teach them another story. And now we don't stop. Let's read the parable of Menace. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minutes. We'll explain. And he said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your minna has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little. You have authority over 10 cities. And the second came and said, Master, your minna has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to them, you also have authority over five cities. Then another came and said, Master, here's your minna. Because you haven't figured it out. It's a piece of money. Here's your minna, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. And there's your title. For I feared you because you are an austere, severe man. Better word in the English. You collect what you do not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew I was a severe and austere man, collecting what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? That at my coming, I might have at least collected it with interest. That's the bare minimum. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. Parentheses, speaking amongst themselves, master, he has 10 minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine. It's going to get really dark. Get ready. Here comes the blood. Who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. This is a Jesus story that has a real dark twist right at the end. Now we're going to save that dark twist for the end for the end. And in the meantime, work our way through what I think, and maybe you disagree with me now that we read it, but I think is one of the most underappreciated and underpreached and under-talked about and maybe even unknown parables of Jesus. We know so little about the parable of the minas, we don't even know what a minna is. The parable of the minas, a minna is a denomination of money in the Roman Empire equivalent to 100 work days. To receive one minna was to receive about three and a half months' salary. To receive 10 minas would have been to receive two and a half years worth of pay. His audience would have laughed at this more than we do because they didn't know where they were going to get their dinner. This is not the economy you live in. This is an economy where you don't know where you're going to eat tonight, much less if you're going to make a mena tomorrow. To be handed 10 minas is to be handed the sustenance of three and a half years worth of money. The crowd would have chuckled when he said it because it's fake gift. There's no way anybody gives you two and a half years worth of salary.
Jesus is tongue in cheek. It's, it's one of those calm little statements that gets floated out there that the crowd, they'll play along because it's a funny story now, a funny story that sounds like it has some sort of deeper connotation. Of course, we know it tails off dark at the end. Let's work on this story because I'm, I'm so excited about this. I, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm actually kind of holding, I'm having to kind of hold this one close to the vest, kind of hold this one back because this thrills me, this story. What I feel like the Holy Spirit has un, just sort of released in this, just as, as a thousand things have in the last 15 years of my ministry where something has reignited a grace passion, like, ah, oh, God is good. You kind of forgot it, you know? And I don't mean I really forgot it, but I think we need reminded of that once in a while. We need our own Damascus Road where the Holy Spirit shows up and goes, look how good I am. Don't make me less than good. This is one of those. This is one of those stories you get to sort of just sink your teeth in and celebrate the goodness of God. And you get to take whatever questions you have against it and just throw them into the story and see where they stick and see what the Holy Spirit does with it. So to work our way through it is a passion of mine. And you know I love to do that sort of slow walk. But I want to give you some thoughts along the way. I don't want to tell you what to think. All right? I want this story to speak to you. I want you to let it speak to you because that's what parables are supposed to do. We make a mistake when we try to tell people what they mean. So I'm going to tell you what I see. And then you just let it work with you. And I don't want to do this for every verse, but I want to do it with the first one. This is my first thought. This sets it up as far as I'm concerned. And this is a framework I'm going to use for the whole parable. right? Because I think Jesus starts with the info you need and then builds on it. And the info you need is a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then returned. Everything on the left side, in quotes, is Jesus basically telling the framework of the story from verse 12. This is how the story starts. Certain nobleman goes into a far country, receives a kingdom so that he can return. And I think what you're seeing is the son of man, Jesus, because he's the certain nobleman. That's the whole reason he's telling the story is he's just called himself the son of man that comes to seek and save that which is lost will go into a far country. And I believe the Lucan version of this story is not that he goes away to a place called heaven, but that the far country is the death of the cross. The far country is the country you and I've never been to. And you go, well, that's heaven. No, that's death. Everyone's going to go to the far country. And so the the nobleman goes into the far country, death, to receive a kingdom. Because we've had the far country being heaven, we think Jesus is still receiving his kingdom. No, Jesus received his kingdom when he came out of the grave. Because by coming out of the grave, he's a king. He conquered. King. Slow down. You can't be a king if you don't conquer. You can't call yourself a king if you ain't conquered anything. Jesus isn't. That's why Jesus, when they say, are you king of the Jews? Jesus goes, it's as you say. Because it's not as I say yet. It's as you say. When am I going to be king? I know I'm adding words to it. When am I going to be king? When I've conquered something. When are you going to conquer something? Death, hell, and the graves in my sights. Go to the cross, down into death, heralding of hell, heralding of death, come out at the resurrection. When the stone rolls away and Jesus comes out, King of kings, Lord of lords, walked out into the world. New creation on the earth because I've conquered. Everything is under his feet and things are being put under his feet. So if the far country is a place called heaven and then someday he's coming back, then that's why a lot of us don't think we're really in the kingdom. Jesus is over there receiving the kingdom. I think this is wrong. Jesus goes into the far country, that's dying, to receive a kingdom, that's resurrecting. 
So the story is about the cross. The cross and the resurrection and his return post-resurrection appearances. I think it could also be an AD 70 prophecy. I think it could also be the moment he first appeared to you. I think it could be the second moment he appeared to you. I think it could be the third moment he appeared to you. Do you see where I'm going with this? And all subsequent appearings that Jesus has had to you and the ones you haven't had yet, but you will have. And then yes, maybe even a future return. If you want a future return of physical Jesus on the planet, I will not fight you. I'll believe him when I see him in the physical because I'm believing him now that I can't see him in the spiritual. All right, leave it at that. So what is this story? Son of man dies, resurrects, shows up in you. And when he does, he has a mission to accomplish that the Jesus that descended into death and resurrected as king of a kingdom we did all that. That's the front. That's the intro. Here's the rest of the parable. He gives his grace to us, menas, and his appearances is when he comes back from the far country to see what we have done with his grace. Because you didn't earn the mena. You were given the mena. Did you earn your salvation? No. You were given your salvation. You've got a handful of menas. <laughs> you got a handful of grace. You got two handfuls of grace. You got two and a half years worth of grace. You got, more, you got chuckle-worthy grace. Ha, ha, ha. That's silly. Nobody gives you that much grace. Welcome to the kingdom. That you're in this story. All right? That's how this starts. And so he comes back not to see what you've been doing with your sex life and your extra money and your tongue and your actions and your fist and your brain. That's the stuff we preach. He comes back to see what you've been doing with his grace. In the story. Are we still in the book? It seems like we are. He doesn't come back to take inventory. He comes back to receive what is his. I put something in you. I'd like to see what you've done with it. Give me my return. And so the story unfolds. Now, the great question that I like to ask, and I don't think we can answer it, but I like to try, is how much of this did the audience understand when Jesus blurts this out at the beginning? My personal thought is, not much at all. They didn't understand much at all, because most of the time, the disciples pull him off to the side and go, hey, can you clarify some of that a little bit? Because I don't know what you're talking about. So, that gives me a free pass on not getting this right, right when I read it, and 2,000 years later, still trying to figure it out. But it doesn't give me a free pass to ignore it. And you want to know what else it doesn't do? By God, it doesn't give me a free pass to put my own stuff in there. And that's what we've been doing with parables. We put our own stuff in there. So let's just see what it says. Let's don't argue from silence. Let's don't argue from our own additions. Let's just see what it says and go back to verse 13 and work through a few verses and talk this out. He called 10 of his servants. 10 is a good old Jewish number for fullness and completion. When you get to 10, you got yourself the beginnings of a government. You may not have a final government, but you got yourself the beginning of one because when you give people commandments, how many do you give them on Sinai? Boom, 10. Five on each side. You got five fingers on each side. You ball them up. You make two fists. It's a big boom. That's thunder coming down from the clouds. God gives 10 commandments because that's about all you can grasp. 
He calls 10 of his servants, and so we've got this nice good round number that Jews would have recognized immediately, and he delivered to them 10 minutes, 10, everybody in the crowd chuckles because that's two and a half years worth of salary in a world where nobody knows where they're going to eat tomorrow, and so that's over the top. I don't even think that translates well today to say two and a half years. I think it would have to be, I, he, he just, you just won Powerball. Let's do that. Let's change it. Because there needs to be something where you go, <laughs> come on, that's silly. Ain't nobody give you that much money. I mean, you give a guy a thousand bucks, that's a big gift. You don't give him Powerball. Okay, but you just won the Powerball. All right? You just won the Powerball. Do business till I come. Do business. It, it is actually really close there in the Greek to what it sounds like. Trade. Go make something happen with it. Do business. Don't add. Let's, let's tear some stuff out because here's what we like to add. It doesn't say be profitable. It doesn't say do good business. It doesn't say build a big business. It doesn't say be a good CEO. It just says try. Just do something with it. Go do business. I'm not asking you to be good at it. I'm not, I didn't pick you because you were smart. I didn't pick you because you had the right certifications or the right degrees. I just gave you a stupid amount of money because I'm just that kind of guy. Now, go do business with it until I come back. When I come back, we'll talk. When I make appearances, when you see me again, I want to talk to you about what I gave you, all right? That's the only rule. The only rule is that when I come back, you and I got to meet each other. Deal? When I'm ready, I want to talk. To me, this is Christianity, by the way. He pours into me his goodness and he goes, here's the conditions. I get to name the terms on when we talk. I make appearances, you listen. If I show up while you're driving down the road, I show up while you're driving down the road. If I show up in the middle of your night, I wake you up. I get to do that. I may not put you back to sleep for an hour. That's the way this game's played. And when I show up, I just want to talk about my stuff. Deal? To me, that's Christianity. I can't tell you how many 3 a.m. meetings that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, has knocked on my heart's door and went, you're going to be up for the next hour. Let's talk. I got some stuff we need to stir over. And it's on his terms, because if it was on mine, it ain't 3 a.m., you know? I'd be like, can we do this tomorrow? I mean, 3 p.m. is better than 3 a.m. I mean, I'm at least already, most of my stuff's done. But this is, I need some sleep. But it's his terms. His appearances, when I come, we'll do business. Now, that's going to cause some people to hate him. So just get ready. Jesus drops, the, this is an interesting Luke in addition. You don't get this in the Matthew part of the story. The citizens hate him. And some of them go, we don't want him to rule over us. And it's an odd little addition that Jesus drops in here. I kind of got a feeling there might have been some people in the crowd the day that Jesus tells this in the Luke version of the story that have been giving Jesus some grief. Maybe there have been some people giving him some problems. So there's always going to be some citizens that don't want it. There's always going to be a a delegation saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. I don't actually want to live here too long because quite frankly, if that were you, you wouldn't be in this room. All right, so you don't hate him. You don't want him to not rule over you. I doubt you're living in rank spiritual rebellion. And so we're going to let that set for someone else who needs to simmer that in their spirit. Instead, we move on. And so it was that when he returned, we've already talked about what these could look like. That's maybe your 3 a.m. visit, right? Having received his kingdom, he's already done his work. Jesus is already resurrected. His kingdom's his. He's king of kings. He walks into your life, he's king of kings. He's not on his way to being, he already is. Having received his kingdom, he commanded his servants to whom he had given the money. He didn't loan it to them. He didn't loan it to them with interest. He didn't, get, he didn't loan it to them with conditions. He gave them, I love how Jesus doubles down here. He gave them the money, gave it to them. 
It's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. Gave him the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. He wants to know what they've done by trading. He wants to know what they've done to give, to build, to do. He didn't give any rules, but he, he wants to see what's, what's up. Next verse. First guy, master your minutes are in 10 minutes. That's a great return, by the way. This dude essentially doubled everything he was given. He turned two and a half years' salary into five. He's pretty good. He turned Powerball over, like, boom, I want it twice. Pretty hot. And he said to him, well done, good servant. You were faithful and very little have authority over 10 cities. Time out. Pause the button. Hit pause on play for a moment because this right here is where we start adding stuff into the story that's not in the story. And part of the reason we add stuff in the story is because your translators did it to you first. You just didn't know it. Let me give you an example. Well done, good servant, because you were faithful and very little have authority over 10 cities. Well done, good servants, there is no done in the Greek here. He doesn't say well done. He says, well, good servant. But we don't like that kind of a God when we translate the Bible. We want a God that rewards smart people, industrious people, slick people. I want a God that rewards the done what did you do? Because if we can get a God that rewards the done, we'll get a God that punishes the undones or the bad dones, the dones you did you shouldn't have done. That's a God we can rally behind. He's a fair God. He gives you good stuff when you're good and he gives you hell to pay when you're bad. And we can build ministries on that. That's how you build a good church, right? Is getting people to do the good and shun the evil. That's the whole point. And yet, when Jesus tells the story, it's well, good servant. It's not well done because it's not about what was done. It's about faith. What was the next line? Well, good and faithful servant. Not well done. Good and faithful servant. Notice we stick done in front of faithful because it's way more important to do than to be faithful, right? You can talk faith, but you better do mm. Well, servant, you're faithful. Now, what's faithful mean? You did what I told you to do. I gave you grace, and you went and did business. So happens, you doubled it. As a reward, more grace. Reward for doing or reward for faith? And that's the kicker. And it seems to be that Jesus rewards Faith in the story, overdoing in the story. Faith has an element of do, we'll talk about in a moment. But the faith that's in the story is a result of an encounter with the master. The faith has an explosion of the grace. When Paul gets a hold of this concept, here's what he says to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 2.8. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not yourself 
It's the gift of God. Grace didn't have anything to do with you. It had everything to do with God. Let me say it again. Grace had nothing to do with you. It had everything to do with God. It wasn't that God thought you cleaned up enough, so he went, here's some grace. It's not that God thought you had potential, so here's some grace. It's not that God saw a good CEO if he could just put him in the right captain's chair. No, it's nothing about you. It's just that God is good. It's the gift of God, not of works. So kick the work out of the parable of the menace because it doesn't have anything to do with God blessing you. It didn't have anything to do with God saving you. It doesn't have anything to do with God keeping you. It doesn't have anything to do with God blessing you, anointing you, prospering you, favoring you. How many of you know God is not good when things go well for you? God is good even when things go bad for you. Stop cheapening God's goodness by going, man, I'll tell you what, my kids are doing well. I got a raise at work. We just paid off two credit cards. God is good because you won't walk in and go, kid flunked out, broke my leg, got a cancer diagnosis, and they're defaulting on the car. God is good. Promise you don't end up with God is good in most testimonials at the end of that because we've got it ingrained that the good God gives us good stuff. And if it's not good stuff, then it had to be the devil. If God's still good, it doesn't have anything to do with my stuff. Stop cheapening God's goodness. Even when hell strikes, God is good. Even when all hell breaks loose and nothing goes right, God is good. Because the grace he has given me didn't give me because I was good. And here's, here's the second part of it. He didn't give it to you when you were good. In fact, he gave it to you when you were terrible. When we were enemies, Christ died for us. That's an underpreached text from Romans. When you were an enemy, Christ died for you. When you were a heathen, Christ died. When you accepted Christ, you didn't have anything cleaned up. So what makes you think that if it gets dirty after he accepts, he's going to kick you out? Let me say that again. You didn't have anything cleaned up when he put his grace in you. So why, when you screw it up, would he get rid of you? And so the grace that is yours isn't because you didn't do it. You can't boast. You're his workmanship. You're created in Christ Jesus. Now here it comes. You are created for good works. You're not created because of good works, but you're created to do some. This is why I very much believe that out of knowing who I am in Christ, I'm going to do some good works. They're going to be good in the eyes of God. And I got a feeling the good works in the eyes of God don't have a lot to do with the good works in the eyes of the church. Because most people in the eyes of the church think like picketing your senator's to get the laws changed is good works. But in the eyes of God, it might be caring for the widows and the fatherless. And while you're going to get applauded for the first one, you'll get called names for the second one, especially if you try to throw too much funds at that project. So don't ever take man's definitions of goods and evils. Because God's is people first. People-centric. Not structures, not governments, not laws, not codes, not rules, people. All that other stuff may be well and good, and it may be hell and bad. But people first, that's the heart of the Father. And so if it's not a people first good, I don't, I don't think I'll brag about it being good. It might be something, but it might not be good. And that doesn't mean we don't do it, but we don't call it good. So the good works that are birthed out of this, are the ones God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a lifestyle of goodness, a lifestyle of love, a lifestyle of turning the other cheek, a lifestyle of that Sermon on the Mount, 
living because we have received the goodness of God and we're doing something with it. Let's go back to the story. Luke 19, 18. Second guy walks up. Hey, master, your minutes are in five minutes. The master doesn't say to him, you dork, I gave you 10. You only turned it into five. You're not as good as the last guy. He had 10. He turned it into 10. Notice right here that it has nothing to do with how much he brought in. He doesn't say, why didn't you do the stuff the first guy did? He gives him five cities as well. So the second comes in, master, you earn five. Likewise, he said, you get five in return. What do I, this is what I see in this. Disproportionate return. Grace does what it does. We don't improve it. We don't diminish it. It's disproportionate. Like, God doesn't have to give us what we've earned. He's God. He doesn't have to give us proportional to what we put in. It's disproportionate returns. From a disproportionate, okay, hang on for this word. A disproportionate, categorically unfair God. God is unfair. Because if God were fair, he would give you what you earned. Don't ask God to be fair. Ask God to be just based on his grace. Be just with me based on your goodness. Give according to your goodness, not according to me. Give according to your grace, not according to what I am. God's gifts belong to us. Their fullness and their effects belong to him. He gave it to you, but he's the one that gave it. He can give you whatever he wants. I don't know why he does what he does in me. No more than I know why he does what he does in you. But I don't judge what he does in you and assume that I'm doing something wrong because God hasn't done that in me. And yet most of our judgments are based on what we see in other people that don't look like what we see in us. Or, this is the really dark side no one likes to talk about, our judgments are the things we see in other people that we know are in us that we don't want anyone to see. <laughs> and, and so it's really easy to just go after it in that guy because I can see it in him. And boy, we need to get rid of that kind of crap in the world is the junk that this guy's doing. And so we go after them with judgment. And disproportionate, unfair, that's the definition of grace, that God doesn't have to do it the same way every time. He does ask that we, quote, do something. What do we do? Do business. I didn't tell you to do good business. I didn't tell you to make money. Just go do something. Go do something with this grace. Quit just sitting here and go do something with it. I'm not even asking that you're good at it. I'm just telling you to go give it a shot. It's way better than doing nothing. And what does that translate into? What does that look like? I think it looks like this last part of the story. Luke 19, 20. Another came and said, Master, here's your minna. I kept put away in a handkerchief. I feared you. Because you're an austere man, a severe man, you collect what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. Now, what did he do with his gift? Wrapped it up in a napkin. When the Matthew 25 parable of the talents, different parable, in that one, he buries it in the ground. But in both cases, it's out of sight, out of mind. But it's out of sight, out of mind from himself so that he doesn't screw it up. That's why he puts it in the ground. That's why he hides in the napkin. I don't want to mess this thing up. It's not that I don't respect the gift. I respect the gift. I respect the gift too much to lose it. So I'm going to hide it away so that when God demands of me what he gave to me, I'll be able to at least give that back because he's a severe God and I don't want to screw this thing up. The thirds, uh, uh, give me, let's read 22, 23. 
So God says, out of your own mouth, I will judge you. Out of your own mouth, I will judge you. See this? All right. Let's do what you, let's run down the road for a minute with the way you think this should be. And as we run down the road with the way you think this should be, you knew I was a severe man. You knew it. Notice it doesn't say I am. It says you knew it. Collecting what I did not deposit or even what I did not sow. Why did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have at least collected it with interest? What, what's happening here? Here's what I think. The third servant is an example of when we deal with God in fear based on what we think God is like instead of what we trust he is like in Jesus. So let's start there. Because God, the, the owner, says to the third man, you knew that I was a severe man. He doesn't say, I am a severe man. He goes, you knew I was a severe man. And I think Jesus is showing us an example of what happens when we live our Christianity in fear that God is going to take away what it is that God has given us or that we will somehow ruin what it is that God has given us. And so we allegorically, metaphorically hide it in the handkerchief, bury it in the ground, put it away behind our doctrines and our rationales and our principles and our ideologies and build structures around it so that it is quote-unquote safe and we've missed the point of Christianity entirely. The servant thought he was supposed to make money, so he did nothing because he had fear that he would lose the money that had been given to him. Fear is what kept him from living, right? Fear that he would screw it up. He thought his job was to make money. What was his job? Start over. What was his job? Do business. Not make money. Do business. Hey, if you go do business, guess what? You might not make money. We got a business guy here. You go do business, do you make money guaranteed? No. In fact, most people that go do business make no money. They lose money. They lose lots of money. They, they tried, most businesses fail, and they fail quickly. And it's not because people are stupid or they're idiots. It's because it's hard. It's just not easy. You might be in the wrong field. You might be in the wrong market. You might have should have borrowed at a different bank. You probably should have rented a different building. Maybe you hired the wrong people. Maybe you spent too much money on signage and not enough money on, on research. Maybe you did no research. Maybe you're just throwing money at everything. Maybe you have no money to throw at anything. There's a gazillion reasons that I've run businesses in the ground. Never have I ran one on the ground by not trying, <laughs> okay? You trying has ran some in the ground. And I've had some success from trying, but I got nothing done doing nothing. And so the servant thought he was supposed to make money, so he did nothing because he feared he would lose what was given to him. And his rationale was like so many of us today. And I put this in quotes because this is our rationale, right? This is sort of the modern Christian thinking. I'm going to guard what God has given me so I don't lose it. I'm going to be careful, take no risks, play it safe, don't lose your salvation. Double down on moral codes, doctrines, principles. When you take this to the nth degree, fast more, read more, do more, give more, go more, work harder. Do whatever you got to do. Don't lose this. And it gets highly charged emotional moments. I've been in them, man. I preach. You can, you can preach people to tears in that environment because they're scared. The hell's already been scared and into them and out of them already. You can preach people into chaotic fear. They'll, they'll fill the altars because you can pray on fear. And it's happening to you on the news because the news preys on your fear. They pray on your fear about 
sickness. They prey on your fear about the economy. They prey on your fear about politics. They prey on your fear about governments. They prey on your fear about, and maybe there's some things to be concerned about, but there's nothing to lose our minds over like we're losing our minds over. You ain't had one come out yet that we ought to be losing our minds over. And yet that's boom, boom. And we go, why? Boy, there's got to be something to it. It wouldn't be so much pushed at us. No, 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 no. There's not, it doesn't have to be something to it to push fear. All you got to do is have people who have some fear and you can peddle any fear you need. And so a lot of our Christianity has been, don't be risky. Don't risk it. Don't take any chances. Is that a sin? Might be a sin. Don't do it. Is that a problem? Might be a problem. Don't do it. Should I be on that side? Don't be on that side. Don't do it. And, and because we've played it safe, we are the third person in the parable of the menace. We brought our grace that we didn't earn, and we laid it right back before the Lord. We think this is what we're going to do when we get to heaven. So we're going to give it back to God in the way God gave it to me, but I'm going to just guard it. I'm not going to do anything with it. Nothing risky. His rationale is be careful so you don't lose your salvation. I think people that even go, well, I wasn't raised in a church that thought you could lose your salvation. Yes, you were. Oh, you weren't raised in one where doctrinally you could lose your salvation, but you were in one where you could practically lose all your talents, gifts, anointings, benefits, and favor Sunday to Sunday. I know. I preached in those too. Because they go, yeah, we're once saved, always saved. And then scare hell out of you about losing your anointing. Okay, so which is it? So either so I guess my salvation's secure, but all the other peripherals. So in either case, you're still living like the third servant. You might have your salvation guarded, but there's some giftings in there you tweak, you fix, you prop up, and if you don't, you lose them. What's his problem? Misunderstood his call. He was supposed to do business. What's that? Trade. Take chances. Live. <laughs> Live. Get out there and do something, man. You realize what you have? You have the favor of heaven in your heart. You've been given the gift of being a new creation. By God, go do something. But what if I fail? Go do something. That's what business is. Sometimes it's a failure. But you got to go do something. You got to go live this grace. Instead, this guy put grace in a handkerchief. This guy played it safe. And how do we do that? Sometimes we hold on to doctrines and we hold on to truths. We're real religious and we're real moral and we got a lot of verses, but we don't do anything. Because with doing something, we might accidentally lose something. You can't, you can't lose what you didn't earn. You can't lose God's grace. He didn't realize he was simply to do business. And you know what doing business is? Keep grace moving by loving others. Forgiving radically. I was going to list a bunch of them off. I just went, et cetera. Because, man, it's a, there's no limit to what grace business is. I can tell you this. When you're making God's arms tighter... And God's love harder to get, you ain't doing business. You're hiding your grace in a napkin. Doing business is throw wide the doors. Let's do some business. Let's love some people. Let's bring them in. Come on in here. You shouldn't accept those people. You know what? We're going to take a chance. We're going to take a chance. Yeah, but they'll destroy your church. Man, we got resurrected Jesus in us, man. We won the Powerball. We can throw some money at it. You know? I mean... We didn't earn this grace. Come here. We're going to love you. You get those people in your church, the whole town will turn on you. Yeah, you know, Jesus died outside the camp. Let's go out there where he is. Maybe, maybe we ain't supposed to be popular. I don't know. Maybe we're supposed to do something with our grace other than sit on it, pat each other on the back, quote some scriptures, slap a bumper sticker on our car. How about we do something with it where we risk. We risk somebody coming into our church makes us look bad. We risk somebody being involved that sins. 
Oh God, what would happen if they failed? And then what people would say about us? Can you, can you feel my facetiousness? I hope you can, because that's exactly what Jesus was pouring on them in Luke 19. This is a facetious story. I, want, I gave you the Powerball, and all I told you to do is go do something with it. And I come back, and you wrapped that dude in a napkin and stuck it in the top drawer of your spiritual heart, and you think I'm excited? I went to the far country, died, suffered, resurrected and brought it back to you as king and you handed it back to me untouched. This ain't anything to shout about. Fall down once in a while. Love somebody risky. Be passionate. Give it a chance. Won't we fail? Heck yes, we will fail. And we'll fail a lot. And sometimes we'll fail miserably. But we won't be accused of not loving people. And we won't be accused of not helping people. And we won't be accused of not accepting people. At the end of the day, I don't care anymore. Too much about what man says or thinks of what I do with the radical grace and love that I believe God has given to me. Because they neither add to nor diminish that grace. If I have $10 and I hand you a dollar, I only have nine. But if I have 10 minas of grace and I hand you one, I still have 10 minas of grace. It does not hurt me to love you. What if your lifestyle is unacceptable? It does not diminish my grace to love you, to accept you, to embrace you. What hurts is if I wrap what I have in a napkin because I'm scared of you and I'm scared of the God that gave it to me. That's unacceptable. That is the underappreciated parable of the menace. What a mighty word by Jesus. Now watch this dark twist at the end, how he lands this thing. All right, what are we going to do with this? Luke 19, 24 to 27. He said to those who stood by, take the minute from him, give it to him who has 10 minutes. They said, Master, he already has 10 minutes. What I like about this is that we will always try to rationalize people not receiving more grace. He's already got 10. Don't give it to him. Give it to someone who has less. Don't ever tell God what to do with his grace. Don't ever tell God what to do with his love. All right? He gets to love who he wants to love. And I got a feeling he loves everyone. And he gets to bless who he wants to bless. And so I don't get to say, yeah, but God, they didn't do what I did. Okay, those, that, those days are gone. Master, he has 10 minutes. Notice that just gets ignored. Everyone who has will be given. From him who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. What's this mean? Bring here. I think this is the definition. Bring here those enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. When you take the Luke 19 story and you filter it into the Matthew 25 parable of talents, you got the people dying at the end of the story. It's pretty easy to eschatologically frame this around the fall of the Mosaic Temple in AD 70. It's pretty easy to frame it around judgment against the system because we know people died. And so you can, you can almost, you can deal with it with that and then kind of ignore it. But I think that leaves it in their context and it doesn't really do much to ours because you get to the end of the story and go, kind of better resolution. What do we do with what Jesus says? So here's what I do. Keep the image of Jesus in mind. Always keep the image. Don't bring back your Joshua God and your second king's God. Don't do it. Don't, don't start opening your Bible. Here a verse, there a verse, everywhere a verse, verse, and go, but it's in the Bible. If it ain't in Jesus, you're not a disciple of it. Start there, stop there. Keep Jesus in mind 
as you conclude the parable and the ending seems to say that the point of the story is you are cut off, slain in Jesus' words, when you refuse to play God's way. What's his way? Radical, unfair grace. What's our way? Fear-based performance. You want to play fear-based performance? It's going to kill you. You want to play my way? Life. Now, I, I know what I'm talking about because I played this way for a long time. This will stress you out. This will kill you. You'll be ready to quit. A lot of people have quit. A lot of people aren't, aren't really living for the Lord anymore in their day-to-day -day life because they had a fear-based Christianity in the first place, and they got tired, and they just wore out. And a lot of it's just guilt and condemnation. You, you corner them. If you can ever get them to talk to you, they'll just say, I just can't, I can't live that. I just can't live it. I just can't live for God. I'm not trying, but it's too much. And others are living it and hate it. They are miserable Christians. I'm, I'm framing all of this right here. Right? They are miserable Christians because all they have is the knowledge of salvation wrapped in a napkin. They've hid it away somewhere just hoping to get to heaven. Just get me to heaven. And whatever looks like it gets me there, I'll back. But I ain't going to step out. I'm not going to do anything risky with it. Because I can't risk missing heaven. Here's what, here's what, here, you want to know what it sounds like? Get ready, it's going to sound real familiar. I can't risk missing heaven for your sin. I can't miss risking he missing heaven for what you call love. And the truth is that a lot of times we're just the third servant. And what kills us is not a future hell. What kills us is a Christianity hidden in a handkerchief that doesn't affect our neighbor, our kids, our spouse, our enemies, our world. And Jesus gets to the end of the story, and I don't think anybody was laughing anymore. And I got a feeling there was a few people, some of his disciples included, that maybe that night as they prayed said, God, I don't know what I got to do, but I want to be those first two guys. <laughs> I don't want to hide this in a handkerchief. Teach me how to release this grace. I, have no, I had no idea as I started, how does this, how does this baby end today? Because this is one of those words that for me, you, I, you can't get that out there fast enough. There's so many good things coming around the corner in that story that you, you start to run up against one. You go, you got to hurry, get, get around that corner, get around that corner, get around that corner. So I hope we didn't rush those turns today. I hope we didn't stall out on any of them either. Um, and I don't know where to put my foot at the end except to say this. See a big God in the face of Jesus and don't hide it in the handkerchief of your spiritual intelligence and fear. And start talking to the Lord about what it would look like if you did business in the kingdom. Maybe that's how we pray this week. Go, God, teach me how to do business today. I go on out here with a pocket full of love. Teach me how to do business. And the, the wrong way to do business is shove it in my pockets and go, mm, 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 they don't qualify. You go, teach me how to do business. I'm going to throw, some of it's going, I'm going to waste some of it. I'm going to love some unlovable people. And they're going to hate me and beat me half to death. I'm going to love them anyway. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I feel like I do that sometimes with videos. Like, 
I'm trying to throw out goodness and then you just get this vitriol back from people. It's like, man, it didn't even cost you anything to watch that. You still cussed me out. It's like, I, don't, I didn't even, I didn't come into your house and make you hit play. And yet that's what I get back. It's like, but hey, that's the risk we take. You go, it's way better than, I'm not going to say anything at all because I don't want any opposition. You just do business, man. Do business. Do business. Father, thank you. I don't, I don't know how to end today other than just say thank you. You're teaching me how to do business. In some ways, Father, I've been doing business and didn't know I was doing business. I tried to do business better, not realizing that it ain't about doing it better. It's just about doing it. It's just about loving. It's about putting it out there. I don't know what better even would look like, but I do know what doing nothing looks like. And I don't ever want to be that third servant. Father, I want a Christianity that's bigger than hiding it in a handkerchief around a bunch of scriptures and doctrines and ideas because I'm too scared to love and I'm too scared to live for fear. I do not want a bad picture of you. I want a picture that looks just like Jesus, the ultimate picture of God, the ultimate man doing business on the field. Teach us how to do business in Jesus' name. Amen.